There are several television shows that, that will help you to understand jobs better. Everything from Undercover Boss to How It's Made, those kind of shows give you insight into what it's really like on the ground making products or services that, that we depend on in our lives. It gives us insight about some things that maybe you've been curious about how those things actually happen. Well, a show that specifically probably comes to mind when you think of interesting jobs is probably a show like Dirty Jobs. I think I've only ever watched one episode of that show, but it was very insightful. If I remember correctly, uh, there was an episode about a unique dirty job that, that was less than 15 miles from where I lived at the time. And there was some talk about this show being featured, and so I tuned in. Well, in, uh, on Lake Erie, on South Bass Island, the host of Dirty Jobs, Mike Rowe, took on the role of a snake researcher. I think maybe I've mentioned this before. I'm not a big fan of snakes. If there was a list of jobs that I would sign up for, the last one would be snake researcher. But to do this dirty job, he had to clean out seaweed in the harbor of South Bass Island, and then he had to feed the water snakes. Well, he was supposed to catch them, but in trying to do so, while he was feeding them, they spent a lot of time feasting on him. They were chewing on him. And I was, even though I'm not a big fan of snakes, I was rather fascinated by the whole thing because even though I only went to South Bass Island once, and honestly, I can't remember if it was before or after this show, it doesn't matter. Regardless, this was a job that was being done someplace not too far from my home, and I would have known nothing about it without the investigation that went on through this television program. In fact, you could go to South Bass Island, you could pull into the harbor, you could eat at a restaurant, you could drive around the island in a golf cart, you could even go to the top of Perry's Monument, 350 feet in the air, where you have an overlook of the whole island. You would never know what was going on, this job that these researchers were doing. You'd have no idea. And we think, as we think about our passage for today, I'm drawn to that idea. Jobs that we, we know maybe are out there, but you would know what's really going on. You don't know what the job really is. And the reason I think of this is because this passage calls Jesus our great high priest. Well, do we even think about Jesus in those terms? Do we think about Jesus being a great high priest? And do we even know what a priest actually does. What is the job of a priest? You see, we don't live in the same world as the biblical, biblical authors. When we hear the word priest, we probably get more of the idea of someone who's like a pastor. But the truth of the matter is, is that a priest is one who oversees and administers a sacrifice. You want to talk about your dirty job, right? Overseeing a sacrifice, the slaying of an animal for the forgiveness of sins, that's a dirty job. And as we continue our journey through the book of Hebrews this morning, we're going to see that this idea of Jesus as a high priest and what that entails is so vital for our understanding of what we believe as Christians. 
And so as we dig into this great passage this morning, we're going to use three points as our framework to break this down for us as we hope to understand it better and apply it to our lives. The first important thing that we're going to see is that Jesus is able to sympathize with us because he took on human flesh. We've seen this before in the book of Hebrews. When we talk about Jesus, we're not talking about him being out there someplace in the abstract. Jesus addresses our human needs, not off someplace mystical. Instead, Jesus addressed our need here on earth in our very own flesh. And because of this, we can confidently go before God and we can know that he will help us in our time of need. Secondly, we see that Jesus is greater than any other high priest. The high priests in the Old Testament were sinful humans. And so they not only had to offer sacrifices for others, but they also needed to present gifts and sacrifices for themselves. But Jesus offered himself as a perfect once and for all sacrifice, and that is so much better than any other sacrifice that has ever been given. And lastly, we're going to see that this office that Jesus has, this office of priest, is eternal. It was through his obedience, even in suffering, that he became the eternal source of our salvation. And this is really good news for us. There's not need for continual sacrifices. Instead, there was one sacrifice for our sins in Jesus Christ, and that is sufficient. That is sufficient for the forgiveness of all of our sins. And so we start off today, then, with the conclusion of chapter 4 as we look at verses 14 through 16. And our first point today is that Jesus is able to sympathize with us. And we, we start with the idea of the ascension front and center here for us. Jesus, our great high priest, has, has passed through the heavens, we're told. And the idea being, idea being pointed out is that Jesus was raised from the dead and he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And this is such an important idea because it means that there, there's something important going on. When we, when we talk about the work of Jesus for us, it's essential that we understand this eternal nature of it. If Jesus was merely a teacher who was cut down in his prime, and then he stayed in the tomb, then what in the world are we doing here today? There's a lot better things that you could be doing with your time if Jesus was still in the tomb. If he was just a teacher who is still dead, why bother? But that isn't the story of who Jesus is. He was crucified for our sins, but death could not hold him. And so he rose again from the dead, and now he is ascended on high, and he reigns. That's why we are here today. We praise an ascended king who resurrected from the dead to guarantee us eternal life. This is a very important plot point, and it's the reason that the church has survived and thrived for nearly 2,000 years. The faith that we believe, the faith that we confess, is rooted in this one who is reigning on high. In our lives, we have many ideas that we hold to, right? We all have beliefs that we adhere to, some stronger than others, I believe that if someone were to come to us with, with some information that disproves something that we believe, I would like to think that we would be open-minded. I'd like to think that. 
But the truth of the matter is that we hold to many things very tightly. We're going to be resistant to things if it doesn't match up with how we see the world. And this is even more true if it's something that we know to be absolutely true and it's connected to an authority. We have, we have and hold on to strong convictions because those are the things that, that matter to us in life. We might be able to be persuaded on why something relatively insignificant isn't worth holding to, but when something really matters, when it really shapes how we view the world, we hold on to it strongly, and we rightly should. Those things, those things become the hills that we die on. Those convictions are what we really root, what we believe, and they ground us. They make us who we are. And so the author of Hebrews wants us to have a root in Jesus like that. He wants us to understand the world through the lens of, of who Jesus is ascended on high. And that's why he says he not only died and rose again, but he passed through the heavens. And so this makes Jesus the most important thing. This is what makes Jesus the, the root on which we should have the foundation of our lives. It makes him the absolute authority. Now remember, the book of Hebrews is written to people who are, who are thinking about stepping away from the faith. They're thinking about returning to their Jewish ritual roots. Instead of doing that, they are encouraged to hold fast to the confession that they have in Jesus. He is risen. He's ascended. And if that happened, and it did, then why in the world would we trust anything else? Why would we go back to something else? So hold fast, the author of Hebrews says, Stick to the truth of the gospel. The Christian life is like a sailboat. You need the truth of the rudder to make sure that you sail straight. And that rudder is the truth of Scripture. And that Scripture shows us who Jesus is. It shows us what He did. And the Holy Spirit comes along, and, and that's the wind that fills our sails. It builds up our faith, and it pushes us, pushes us along. But we need that strong rudder. And the only place we can get that strong rudder is in the truth of who Jesus Christ is. And so the author of Hebrews continues to build on why Jesus is that rudder. Why they should trust in him. And why he should be the reason that they should hold fast to their confession. Jesus isn't a high priest who doesn't understand the perils of the little guy. Again, Jesus is, is not a mystical, out there, somewhere, abstract Savior. He is the Savior who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. And so notice the progression used by the author here. Jesus is exalted, and he, he passed through the heavens. But it isn't just in that space out there that we're talking about. It wasn't just out here that he showed his love. If he passed through the heavens, he had to start someplace, right? He came from earth. And that's where he showed us his love and his life, death, and resurrection for us. He suffered. He was tempted. And so he is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses 
Why? Because he was here. He lived a real life. He was tempted in every way that we are, but yet he didn't succumb to temptation. And so this truth leads us to a very practical application, and it's spelled out for us right here. We can go to the throne of grace with confidence because we have a God who is rich in mercy. Not only does he understand our struggles, but he endured them. He did not sin. And why did he do it? He did it for us. He did it on our behalf. And so if God in Christ endured all that for his people, then he most assuredly hears your prayers. You can go confidently before the throne of grace. What did, what did Jesus do for us? He went to the cross so that we would have access to God. And we're going to see this as, as we move on to the next section of our passage today and see that Jesus is greater than any high priest. As I said, it's important that we understand what a priest is, what a priest does. They oversee a sacrifice. Being a priest was a very bloody job. The sacrifices were the means by which people could go before God. You see, our sinfulness kept us from a holy God. Remember back to the garden. The punishment for sin was to be death. But God, in his great mercy, allows the death of an animal to cover the punishment for sin. But that was only temporary. If you've ever taken the time and stopped and tried to read the book of Leviticus, you see this bloody job on full display. The sacrificial system was to show the need that people had to be made right with God. But not every person was a priest. Not every person could make a sacrifice. You just didn't go out, get an animal, and sacrifice it on your own after you sinned. That wasn't how it worked. The high priest had a specific job to do. And we see here in verse 1 of chapter 5, the high priest was appointed to act on behalf of of men in relation to God. They were the ones who offered gifts and sacrifices for the sins of the people. But we see here, as we read this, that there's a problem with this arrangement. Yes, the high priest can understand those who are, who are wayward or who are ignorant of their sin. Why? Because he's a human too. He, he's, he's weak. And he's a sinner, just like they are. But therein lies the problem of a human priest. He needs to offer a sacrifice for himself. Why? Because he hasn't loved the Lord his God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. He hasn't loved his neighbor as himself. He needs blood spilled for him too. So you see the problem. You see that we need something and someone greater. If this problem of our sin is ever going to be solved once and for all, we need more than just a regular high priest. We need a great high priest who is like us, but doesn't need to have his sins forgiven. We need one who is like us in every way, but without sin. And you see, you understand the flow of the argument here. We need Jesus. We need Jesus to be our great high priest. But we see in this passage that there's a little bit of a problem. Jesus isn't a Levite. All the priests come from the Levites. According to the law, they had to be descendants of Levi. But is that what the Messiah 
is prophesied to come from. Where was the Messiah prophesied to come from? We saw this in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. The genealogies of Jesus show us that he is a descendant of Judah, a descendant of David. So how can Jesus be this great high priest that we need so badly? And so this is why this passage says here, you can see it. It says that no one takes this honor upon himself. The author of Hebrews is is letting us know that God appointed Jesus to this office of high priest. When it says Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, it means that Jesus wasn't just usurping this office of high priest, but it was the intent of Almighty God that he would serve in this way. So once again, how does the author of Hebrews prove his point? We've seen this through the book. He quotes from the Old Testament, and we see that Jesus is the Son of God. And then we see another quote from the psalm, but this one, this one's a new one we haven't seen before. It says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, I'm not going to dig in too deep to Melchizedek just yet because there's a whole lot more of Melchizedek as we go forward in Hebrews. And I'm, but just so you know, I'm not, not digging into it today because I don't like to say Melchizedek because it's hard to say. It's because we're going to get to it later. You'll have plenty of chances to hear me fumble through that word. But we're also going to see Melchizedek in a few months when we return to the book of Genesis and we look at the life of Abraham. That's where Melchizedek is from. In a nutshell here, Melchizedek is a priest who comes out of nowhere. We're in the middle of the book of Genesis and Abraham is moving along and all of a sudden this priest shows up. He shows up and then he's never heard from again. He's mentioned in the Psalms and here in Hebrews, obviously. But otherwise, we don't know much about Melchizedek. He is a priest that Abraham meets. He gives a tithe to him. He offers a sacrifice. So why is it important to what Hebrews is saying here? Well, it's because if he met Abraham, if there's a high priest that meets Abraham, it's way before Levi was born. You can't have a Levite without Levi. Right? Simple, simple genetics, simple family trees. So there must be some priest, the author of Hebrews is saying, that is greater, that comes from another place. And the point is that there are priests who are appointed by God apart from being in the line of Levi. Melchizedek was a priest, and he came out of nowhere. And he continued to be a priest after he left the presence of Abraham. And the author of Hebrews is saying, that this is how Jesus is a priest. He is of a greater order of priests. And we see as we conclude the passage and move to our final point that he is greater for many reasons, but mostly because he endured suffering for us. Ultimately, he is greater because Jesus himself was a sacrifice that he offered as our high priest. And we're going to see that all that Jesus has done for us is for the purpose that he would provide his people with a salvation that is eternal and once and for all. Like I've said multiple times, the job of a priest is bloody. Think about the gallons upon gallons of blood that were shed for the sins of the people. But in Christ, that comes to an end. We're reminded that Jesus is once and for all. And how this happened is through suffering the suffering of Jesus himself. Jesus was able to experience pain and suffering just as you and I do. And he offered prayers and supplications just like you and I do. He cried out to God. 
He shed tears just like we do. The suffering of Jesus was real. His death was not some sort of drama. His death wasn't just for show. It was very real. He was concerned about going to the cross, just like you or I would be. His prayers were heard, but he still had to endure the pain and suffering of the cross. And now there's one part of this idea of the suffering of Jesus that might sound a little bit confusing to us. It says this, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Well, what does that mean? Well, even though we, we have read that Jesus was without sin, it doesn't mean that his life was easy. His struggle against temptation was real. And yet Jesus stood in the face of temptation to give us our salvation. He died for us. He stood in the face. And so that's what it means that he learned obedience through suffering. The obedience of Jesus for you was not just his temptation in the wilderness. It wasn't the restraint he showed when dealing with those who would falsely, falsely accuse him. It was his entire life, all the way to the point of willingly suffering and dying for your sin and unbelief. And we read here that because Jesus was our perfect high priest, he became the source of eternal salvation for those who obey him. And we need to understand the significance of this. You know, we get the idea of our salvation being once and for all. We get that. But for the audience that this book was written to, this idea is profound. They were used to the idea of needing to offer continual sacrifices. They knew that they needed the blood of an animal to be shed regularly because their sin was great. But now in the Lord Jesus Christ, they had an opportunity to have something that they could trust in that would cover their sin forever. And again, we can, we can understand the plea that the author of Hebrews is making to these people. Remember, they're, they're thinking about going back to the sacrifices. And so what we see here in Hebrews is, why? Why would you leave the once and for all sacrifice of the Son of God for your sins? Why would you trust that the endless blood from, from lambs and goats can cover your sins when the Lamb of God has died for you? Why would you go back to that when you have the Lamb of God who made a once and for all sacrifice for you? Why would you rely on a high priest who needs a sacrifice for himself because he's sinful when you can have a priest without sin after the order of Melchizedek who is greater than anything that you can imagine? The plea to these people is to remain faithful Remain faithful to the one who can really save you once and for all. Don't leave him. Trust in him. He will not fail. He is your source for eternal salvation. And while this message, this passionate plea we see in this book, went originally to some first century Hebrews who were having a crisis of faith, it still applies to us today. As we saw previously in the book of Hebrews, the Word of God is living, it is active, and so it applies to all times and to all people. And so as we think back on this passage today, we're going to consider one specific application for us this week. It's particularly important for us to remember 
as we return to the Lord's table this morning. It has been a time of fasting for us. We haven't celebrated the Lord's Supper since March. If you weren't here on that Sunday, it's probably been since January. And as we remember what Christ has done for us today, we remember that his work on our behalf was a once and for all sacrifice. We don't come to this table and believe that we're re-sacrificing Jesus every time. Instead, we trust in the once and for all nature of the work of Jesus on our behalf. And we look to the suffering of Jesus, and we're reminded that, that what he endured was for us. And we come to the table today not believing that, that what we eat and drink today is, is somehow saving us, but that, it, but that this is a means of grace by which God is at work in us to make us holy and to conform us to the image of Jesus. And so our application and challenge today and for this week is to remember this truth. What we need to learn to rest in the sufficiency of what Jesus has done for us. That was the problem. That was the problem in the book of Hebrews. They wanted to go back to these sacrifices, but what did they have? They had Jesus who had done it all for him, and they did not trust in the sufficiency of that ultimate sacrifice. And so what this means for us is to focus on the sufficiency of what Jesus has done for us. Do we really believe that Jesus is enough? Are we putting all of our trust in him alone? Do we really believe that what he has done for us is going to save us? And it's easy for us to say yes. It's easy for us to say yes, but, but when it comes to the way we live our lives, do we really mean it? Or are we constantly trying to add something to Jesus? Trying to add something to the faith that we do? The state of our fallen hearts is to slip back into a belief that somehow I need to do more or to think that somehow I haven't done enough. And it's important that we remember that Christ is sufficient. It's important that we reject this idea that he isn't enough. And so the challenge for us is to daily put aside ourselves and instead take up our cross and follow Jesus. The reason we should do that is spelled out for us so clearly in this passage. He has done everything for us. Why would we turn to anything else? He's risen for us. He's passed through the heavens for us. Why would we think anything that, that we would do is better than that? And so as we take these elements today, maybe, may we be reminded of the sufficiency of what Jesus has done for us. And may that be what we rest in each and every day. In the face of hardship, the work of Jesus is sufficient. In the face of turmoil, the work of Jesus is sufficient. In our struggles with sin, he is sufficient to forgive us. He is our great high priest. And he is the source of our eternal salvation. And so may that be the truth that motivates us. May that be the truth that gives us comfort. May that be the root and the foundation for how we live our lives. Because Christ and his work for us is sufficient for all that we need. Amen.